I'm just going to begin today by uh, reading the passage when you get there. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more, son of David... Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. (laughs) Well, Jesus and those following him are continuing their path on to Jerusalem. Uh, They have one final stop to make before they get there, uh, and and then we'll see that the Passion Week uh, events begin to unfold. They're approaching a small small town named Jericho. It is about eight hours' walk or 16 miles from Jerusalem. This Jericho should not be confused with ancient Jericho, which we remember from Bible study as well. Uh, That was left in ruins. It was never rebuilt. That site was never rebuilt as Joshua and his armies uh, defeated that during the conquest. Uh, That Jericho, again, was never rebuilt. The new Jericho, if we put a map up there now, lies a couple miles to the south and west of Old Jericho. If you can see Jericho there, Old Jericho would have been just up and to the right on the map of where you see the New Jericho and, of course, Jerusalem off to the left. This is probably, by the way, the best explanation as to why Matthew and Mark both describe this encounter that we're seeing here with Bartimaeus as happening as Jesus was departing Jericho. And Luke says that it happened while entering or approaching Jericho. The caravan is probably between those two cities. We've got another picture here. Jericho has has long been regarded as a very beautiful and pleasant city. It's referred to in Scripture as the city of Palms. It benefited from ample rains, plenty of moisture, a moderate climate that was not seen at the higher elevations of Jerusalem. It's known for date palms and other flowering vegetations. You'll see a date palm here in the next slide, which produced a very, uh, very sweet and delicious fruit. These were, these were produced in the new Jericho. It was a productive agricultural region. It abounded in balsam, honey, Uh, cypress, roses, other fragrant product. And uh, the name Jericho itself actually means place of fragrance. In fact, King Herod, Herod uh, Agrippa, even kept a palace there. Jericho 
We might consider it a brief and final retreat now before Jesus begins His barren and treacherous 3,400 foot ascent to Jerusalem, where in a few days He is going to be crucified. That is a picture there away from leaving Jericho. This is a perilous journey uh, where the story of the Good Samaritan arises from as he was robbed and and beaten by thieves on the road. This would have happened uh, on this path toward Jerusalem. There's another picture here that will give you an idea of of the, the mountainous terrain. That's looking down on Jericho with the Dead Sea out at the top to the right. That's what needed to be ascended from where Jesus is right now to go towards Jerusalem. Let's do one more photo there to kind of give a picture of the topography. You'll see a Jericho down there in the plain uh, near the Jordan River on the right. They have to go up through a path and through those rugged mountains and up 3,400 feet away over to the left there to Jerusalem. For the next couple days, however, Jesus he's going to have a chance to smell the roses here in Jericho, and change the course of two men's life. There's going to be Zacchaeus, who we're going to meet next week. He is a tax collector who actually lived in the city of Jericho. And today we're going to see a blind beggar known as the son of Timaeus, or Bartimaeus. Matthew tells us there were in fact two blind men. Bartimaeus had a friend with him, another blind friend. Mark and Luke focus only on Bartimaeus. I don't know why. Maybe he is the one who did most of the talking. Uh, Two or one doesn't really appear to affect the interpretation at all. But I would like you to imagine yourself in, in what Matthew describes as a large crowd with Jesus now. This is a large crowd traveling. It's on pilgrimage with Jesus to Jerusalem. The travelers, as they would go to this mountainous train, would, would increasingly band together because of thieves and robbers along the way. Uh, safety in numbers, uh, and those numbers will continue to, continue to swell as next week is the Passover. The adults, I mean our adults, are surely uh, in dialogue with one another, speaking and visiting. The children are surely playing There are undoubtedly in this group also a large number of livestock that would have been used for towing carts loaded with provision, many different types of animals. Surely there were live animals accompanying with them that would have been taken for sacrifice. So you can imagine the lambs bleeding and the the wheels, uh, the dirt crushing under the wheels and the animals uh, making noise. So so I want you to understand that this is a loud throng now trying to hear in a loud throng with a lot of people moving through as it approaches blind Bartimaeus who's sitting begging by the roadside. He hears them approaching. He can tell there's a large group. And, and then he perceives men that, that had migrated towards the front of the group, the first ones to get by Bartimaeus. They're at the front of the pack. And so he inquires into them, you know, what's all the commotion about? What is coming here? Uh, what is it all that I hear with my ears. In verse 37, they told him that it was Jesus of Nazareth that was about to pass. So he called out, we read, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
He called out. He, he cried out. Matthew uses a word that means to cry out that suggests he cried very loudly, even screamed in order that Jesus might hear him. The word also has a, a connotation of, of great joy and surprise to see someone. So a screaming with great joy. Folks, this, what we're observing here is a man in Bartimaeus who, who clearly understands who Jesus is and what it means that he is the son of David. That title, son of David. Uh, the fact that he uses it repeatedly. It's used repeatedly in all three Gospels. Uh, it is seen repeatedly that, that Bartimaeus is crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, Israel recognized at this time that, that this was a very distinct title for the Messiah. Son of David is distinct for Messiah or the Christ. Uh, even when Jesus questioned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, uh, he asked them, you know, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Everybody knew what the son of David title meant. In effect then, what Bartimaeus is doing is he's publicly declaring that this Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that God made a covenant. We spoke earlier about covenants. God made a promise, a covenant with King David, and he promises him this. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, God told King David. The question is, can this refer to David's son, Solomon? No. The answer is no. It cannot. Israel clearly recognized that this didn't refer to Solomon because Solomon's kingdom did not endure forever. In fact, very shortly after Solomon's death, the kingdom was divided. You had the northern ten tribes that were referred to as Israel from that day forward and the southern two tribes as Judah. So it was split between Israel and Judah. God continued with his promise to David concerning his son. He says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. And the strokes of the sons of men. Folks, the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7, it provides one of the most explicit statements found in all of Scripture concerning the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Although we're told in 1 Peter 2.22 that, that Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth, Peter also assures that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. In his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Christ committed no sins. He was the spotless lamb led to slaughter. But as he endured God's wrath for the sins of mankind, the Father corrected him with the rod of men. 
That's going to happen in just a few days. He did this exactly as if Jesus had committed your sins himself. It isn't symbolic. Jesus' death on the cross, it isn't a moral example of someone giving up his life for others. It isn't a symbolic pardon for sin. No, it is a genuine penal substitution for your sins. Consequently, Jesus' death on the cross propitiated or or satisfied. Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous requirement as as a righteous and holy God. Christ being punished on the cross satisfied God's righteous requirement to dispense justice on you. But He did it on Him. So Jesus bore the, the full consequence, the, the full weight and punishment for our sins. Uh, that itself eliminates any notion of purgatory. That, that somewhere you're going to pay for your own sins. All, all that does is say that you don't believe that Jesus paid for them. You're going to pay for them yourself somewhere. That, that notion is, is absent from Scripture. Those who are going to pay for their own sins will be punished for eternity for their sins. Um, so Christ, knowing that, Christ fulfills this, this promise in, in the Davidic covenant. You understand me? He, he fulfills this promise for a descendant to come who is corrected by the, rods, the rod of men. Um, he is the unique descendant that God raised up. In fact, you know, distinctly seen as you look at the genealogies found in Matthew and Luke, if you look there, it traces back the genealogy both on his legal father's side, Joseph's, and on the mother's side, Mary's. And, and both genealogies trace back to King David. Jesus was the descendant of King David. Um, traces all the way back to the Davidic throne. And in case you've never grasped this before, maybe you've never, never pondered this, we'll discuss it more later at Jesus' crucifixion. Every time that Joseph traveled to Jerusalem, Jesus' father here now, every time that Joseph traveled to Jerusalem for a feast, or if he were to ever go there for any other type of business, or to visit uh, whatever reason he might go, and each time he passed by the king's palace, Joseph would recognize that that belonged to him. That was Joseph's palace. Joseph was the heir to the throne. The same is true of King Jesus. Jesus was the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. But the authorities in Rome, obviously, not wanting any further uprising of any kind, they they were the type of, of civilization that crushed uprisings and prevented uprisings. So the authorities of Rome had never permitted the Davidic dynasty to be reinstated. They weren't going to allow that to happen on a physical level in the nation of Israel. Instead, they coronated who? King Herod, a half-Jew. King Herod's father was friends with Julius Caesar. That would have been Herod the Great. He was friends with Julius Caesar. His father was. So King Herod the Great, was, he was an appointed king by the Roman Senate. They appointed him. Well, we'll just make you king. You think we have political problems. <laughs> Folks, this, 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 this was a tough situation for Israel who wanted to see 
the Davidic throne reestablished. In our, in our Bible life group now, which is a Christian view of, of government and politics, that meets at 9.15 in the other building. If you missed uh, just getting started, they're online. Talk to Pastor Weiler, you can get uh, started again online. But over the next 10 weeks now, Pastor Weiler is going to iron out all of our f- political problems in America. By the end of this series. It's impossible, right? It's just impossible. But with the boot of Rome, the, their boot is on Israel's neck. It wasn't that simple for Israel to reestablish the Davidic throne in, in a literal sense. They did, however, at the time of Jesus, this is really important, they did still have the ancestral records of who was born to who, and all of the tribes and all the families, and those were still at this point, before 70 AD, preserved in the temple. So a simple document query, a document search, would remind them who the real king is, who the real king should be. He would be of the tribe of Judah, a carpenter living in Nazareth. This is the reason that Joseph had to tra- travel with Mary uh, during the census that we are told in Luke 2 verse 3 to his own city, to Judea, because he was of the tribe of Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Joseph should have been king. He couldn't, he couldn't assert that authority or it would have been his head. Folks, you thought you got short change in life, huh? Jesus was justifiably the eldest son of Joseph and lawful heir to the Davidic throne. Though not explicit in Scripture, um, this, this evidence in the genealogies will rise to the surface at his trial. In a, in a pe- peculiar aspect, by the way, in the sentencing made by Pilate. You figure it out. And let me know how that works out. This is seen, this evidence will rise and it will be seen in a peculiar aspect of sentencing by Pilate. I don't have time to spoil it for you today. That will come down the road. God made a covenant with David. I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne is established forever. That's God's promise to David realized in Jesus. Folks, Davidic royalty, Davidic majesty, whichever way you want to look at it, the throne is what blind Bartimaeus saw when he heard Jesus was coming. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He was a better Bible student than most of us. And like every good evangelism committee does, the men, the men tell Bartimaeus, you know, Shh, be quiet, be quiet. 
Can't you tell we're trying to do outreach here? Keep it down. Jesus is coming. You're going to scare everybody away, right? Isn't that how we, how we act sometimes? Timid? Afraid to let the truth get out? Suppress the truth about Christ? Let's not rock the boat? Let's not cause any trouble? Maybe we can just slip on past and we won't have to mention Jesus at all. Especially not a blind beggar. You know, he probably wouldn't even fit in with us anyhow. Bartimaeus, he must have known that Scripture made very specific promises when God's servant came. You remember them from Isaiah chapter 42 that I read to you earlier? Very specific promises when the servant came. And blindness is not an attractive quality for ancient Israel. It was evidence, so they thought, that you were suffering a consequence of sin. It was an earned consequence. Uh, we, we, see this play, we see this play out on an earlier occasion in John chapter 9 when Jesus, um, with a different man, a different blind man, blind from birth, by the way, his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus replied, you know, you boneheads. It's neither this man nor his parents who sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Apparently the folks didn't want to talk about Jesus because they didn't want to see the works of God displayed. Because they perceived Bartimaeus maybe lower than themselves. Held him with contempt. Today we think of it, you know, well, you know, your life is screwed up. Well, quit screwing up. Must be because somehow you screwed it up, right? You, you got what you earned. You've been dabbling in things that you shouldn't have done. You, you deserved it. That's what you get. Jesus is not for you. He's for all of us nice people. And we walk right on by. We're going to go with Jesus to Jerusalem, apparently, but you really shouldn't be traveling along with us. But what they can't see, ironically, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus sees... In fact, he's the only one here that actually sees him and his blind friend. And, he, and they're blind, and they can see. Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples, whose, whose vision was fine, last week we learned that uh, they couldn't see anything. Verse 34, Luke 18 told us the disciples understood nothing. They couldn't comprehend what Jesus said. The meaning from them was hidden. They weren't seeing anything. And I don't know exactly what blind Bartimaeus understands at this point in time. Not exactly, but I do know one thing. He sees a whole lot more than these other guys. He sees that Jesus is the son of David, the promised one. um, And he wasn't going to keep it hidden. He kept on screaming. Uh, He believed in Christ. Uh, He saw him for who he really is. It's presented as no small coincidence then, after just the complete buffoonery we saw with Jesus' disciples last week, that this healing of the blind, this serves now as the final healing miracle of Jesus' ministry. Final healing miracle is right here. Not the final miracle, the resurrection will be closer to that. Um, But the final healing miracle of Jesus' ministry. And Bartimaeus then signifies the fulfillment of God's promise to, to a true believing remnant of Israel. 
to the remnant of Israel who actually believed a promise never given for all ethnic Jews, but to those of Israel who would become children of Abraham by faith. You know, not all ancient Jews or all ancient Israel was saved just because they were ethnic Jews. Some of them were really rotten. Those were saved, the ones who were of the same faith as Abraham. It was announced by Jesus, this promise early in his ministry. We studied it back in Luke chapter 4, by the way, uh, as, he, as he read the scroll of Isaiah again in the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth. He, he opened up the scroll to Isaiah and, and proclaimed this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sound familiar? Isaiah 42. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He's proclaiming the favorable year of the Lord. That was the promise. Uh, This mirrors the promise heard earlier in our scripture reading, Isaiah 42, to Jesus, God's servant. He said, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations, plural nations, to open blind eyes. Folks, those are words that would have resonated with Bartimaeus. To bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. Isaiah writes that long before Christ was born. It's a whole new day. And the reference to opening the blind eyes, it's not speaking of a condition of eyesight. All right. Instead, national Israel was time and again in the Old Testament, Old Testament chastised in the prophets, for being spiritually blind. We talked about that at length last week, being spiritually blind and not being able to see. And God used the imagery of blindness. The imagery of blindness, we know, because it's not merely debilitating, it's completely irreversible. Full blindness. It's still today an irreversible condition. That's why God used it for this, this broad illustration. But for a remnant in Israel, Jesus has, he has opened their eyes that it is a dawn of a new day. There's a change coming. That in just a week, roughly a week, Christ will hang on the cross. There is a changing of the guard. You follow me? Sadly for Israel, it also signifies a sunset for them as a nation. The sun is going down for them as the sun rises for the nations. And if you remember your covenants, the one that was given on Mount Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant or or the Covenant of Law, some referred to it as, that was ratified by an agreement between God and Israel. It hinged upon Israel's obedience to the covenant. Listen to this. God told Moses this. You yourselves 
have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if, it's conditional, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, God told Moses. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words which the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we shall do, right? And Moses then brought words Uh, brought those words from the people back to the Lord. Kind of almost comical, isn't it? Oh, sad. Folks, that was a bilateral agreement. Two sides. It's conditional on obedience. Now, God's side, He isn't going to fail. God never fails. Israel failed. God's covenant promise was conditional on obedience. Israel failed. By contrast to that, the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is called the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17.5. It promised to make him a father of how many nations? Many nations, right? That was unilateral. God, if you, if you remember the imagery, there were animals who were split in half and God passed alone through the torches. Is dependent only on God. Adam, Abram was in a deep sleep, right? He was, he was taking a nap. So the Abrahamic covenant was dependent only upon God himself. It said this, Now when Abraham, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. Just Israel? No. A multitude of nations is the promise to Abraham. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. Again, this covenant was given to Abraham unilaterally. It's done. There's no variation to it. And as repeatedly foretold in the Old Testament, the son of David would inaugurate a brand new covenant. This old covenant with Moses, there where Israel failed, the son of David who would come would inaugurate a brand new covenant that will be ratified in Calvary in about a week. It's written in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, says the Lord. Remember, that was bilateral before. But the new, again, the new covenant is unilateral. God declares, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Folks, that's us. That is us. We are participants in God's new covenant. You know, don't don't be confused. There'll be many messages that could add on to this, but don't be confused with the references or the reference to 
Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 31, 31. Um, the late Zane Hodges, he was a professor for years at Dallas Seminary, and uh, they, they wrote a commentary set of the faculty that was peer-reviewed, and he had, um, had the responsibility of writing on this particular passage in Jeremiah. And uh, Zane Hodges writes years back, he says, it is clear that all these blessings belong, in fact, to all the regenerate of every age since the cross. The reason that Jeremiah mentions this new covenant for Israel and for Judah is not that it's only Israel and Judah. Follow me? But that it's also with Israel and Judah. In order to ensure we will all recognize what Hebrews 8.13 declares. This new covenant, it supersedes and ensures that the old covenant, the one with Moses and at Sinai, with Is- that they made with Israel and Judah is now obsolete. The reason that Israel and Judah are recipients too of the new covenant is, t- is to reassure and remind us they're not still hanging on the old covenant. Jews today are not saved any different than we are. They have to come to faith in Christ. Scripture says that old covenant is obsolete. Done. Over. The new covenant then is guaranteed to believers in Christ. And through this new covenant that has been made, now God's covenant made to Abraham, remember to be a father of many nations, the multitude, that it's actualized through the Gentiles. That promise that God made way ago, way long time ago to Abraham, a unilateral promise that he would be a father of many nations is now actualized through the new covenant when the, when the Gentiles are grafted in to Israel or the olive tree through the cross and through his blood. According to Isaiah when there would come the changing of the covenants or a changing of the guard, there would also be an accompanying sign that comes along with this. Just as Jesus read from Isaiah's scroll in his hometown synagogue, God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This this coming together, this covenants, how the old is gone, the new has come in. It's a fulfillment of what was long ago. God has done it all. Folks, those who have come under the new covenant, those are the blind who will see Jesus. So, so blind Bartimaeus then becomes an outward illustration, uh, you know, a, a pictorial illustration of the inward transformation promised by Jeremiah. Bartimaeus assures that, that the new covenant has dawned. The blind see. From this day forward, from the cross forward, People will now cry out to Jesus by name and see him for exactly who he is and who Isaiah promised he would be. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's fulfilling now the new covenant. Is that you today? 
Is that you today? Do you see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament promised? That God promised to his people long ago? Because Bartimaeus continues to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. Again and again. Even when he's discouraged by others, he's the type that keeps crying out to Jesus. Can Jesus help him? Everybody in the caravan knows that Jesus can help him. And in fact, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead just a few days back. We don't see that recorded in Luke. That's over in other, other books. But Jesus has recently raised Lazarus from the dead. They know that Jesus can help this man. Which, which makes it... Even more astonishing when they know that Jesus can help this man by the road, so, more, so much more astonishing that they're willing to just walk on by. Let the man sit. Even when they know that Jesus is exactly what Barnabas, uh, Bar- Bartimaeus needs. You know, think about, think that's nuts. How could those people walk on by? There's a blind man right there. And Jesus is right here, and we got what, what he needs. How many times do we do that? Doesn't sound so crazy anymore, does it? Think back to our passage last Sunday and the blindness of Jesus' disciples who understood nothing. Who's actually blind in this passage? Those following Jesus. It's Bartimaeus and, and his friend, who we don't hear about in Luke, the blind, the blind friend. It's actually Bartimaeus and his blind friend who cry out to Jesus. They're the ones who can see. And they're still blind. With Bartimaeus and his friend, this is in perfect fulfillment of biblical prophecy, the blind see. Follow me? This is before he's even healed. The blind see. They haven't even regained their vision yet. Isaiah 29, 18 says, On that day the deaf will hear, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Isn't that amazing? How the blind can see. While the seen are blind. Folks, that's because believing is seeing. It doesn't matter what your, whether your eyes work as should be functioned or not. You don't have to have vision to trust Christ and be saved. There are many blind people who have come to Christ. Here's a question that, that needs to be asked with this as we kind of drop here and, and get ready for the Lord's Supper. This, this is a question that, that you guys are probably wondering because we think we know the answer before we actually read it read through the passage, and we look through it like, I think I know the answer to that. I don't think we do. Here's the question that needs to be asked. When did Bartimaeus begin seeing? At what point in time did he believe that Jesus is the son of David? I don't know when. The, the narrative doesn't tell us when. 
Personally, I believe it was at some time pre, on a previous occasion when he had heard about the earthly ministry of Christ through others. At some point, he had heard about this Jesus. He recognized Jesus from Scripture. So, so he believed that Jesus was the promised son of David at, at some time, perhaps even a long time before that caravan ever rolled into sight. Faith is certainly present well before Jesus physically restores his vision because he's crying out to him while he's still blind. And when Jesus called for Bartimaeus to be brought to him, Mark 10, 50 says that Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus leaped to his feet and threw his cloak aside. Folks, there's a joy, there is an excitement. Why? It's because Bartimaeus knows Scripture he knows, I think, this is my supposition, you, you, you decide whether you agree with this or not. I think he knows precisely, precisely what Jesus is going to do when Jesus calls him over. Because I think he's read the same passages that we've read. When the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, the blind will see, and I think he's lit up. I think him and his buddy both are like, we know what's going down here. We've seen in the Scripture... He is in friend, and his friend came running because they believed Jesus could help them. You don't come running if you don't think Jesus can help you. There's a, there's a whole sermon right there. And, and, and if you don't leap and come running to someone who you, who you don't believe can help you. you, you don't do that. You don't come running to someone who you don't believe can help you because seeing isn't believing. Plenty of people who see who don't believe. There are many with perfect vision who don't believe. Believing is seeing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of the living God, who can help you and who can save you, no matter whether you're blind or not. Bartimaeus and his friends, his friend there, are given, given here, provided as a direct contrast to both the rich young ruler, who wouldn't part with anything. Here Bartimaeus probably... Possibly, anyhow, as a beggar, the only thing he had was his outer cloak, the thing that protected you from the elements. He throws that aside. He goes, I ain't going to need that anymore. He leaves it all behind. The rich man would not leave his wealth behind. Um, his comprehension of who Christ is is a direct contrast to the disciples who didn't understand anything. So Matthew 20, verse 32, tells us that Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? They're like, oh, yeah. This is where it all comes to fruition. They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. They're in the caravan now. They're glorifying God. Jesus said to them both, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Through the prophets, Scripture promises under the new covenant, the blind will see and they will cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Is that you today? Is that you today? Do you see Jesus is the Messiah, the one who is promised? Uh, the healing of Bartimaeus makes for a perfect illustration and appropriate conclusion to Jesus' ministry now that he's going to the cross. Last one that he heals. 
By faith, we too are children of Abraham and recipients of a new and better covenant, one that's not like the old, regulated by Sabbaths and animal sacrifices and dietary restrictions, festivals and all those other things, things that were just a shadow of what is to come. One that demanded perfect obedience. Folks, that can only be fulfilled through a sinless Savior. Christ did that. He fulfilled the old covenant. And now we have received a new covenant mediated through his body and his blood. For scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I'm going to invite the men to come forward, distribute the Lord's Supper.